0: Amelaina Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech Show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Virtual reality allows us to experience simulated environments. Mar Gonzalez Franco, researcher at Microsoft Research, explained what virtual reality is. We talked about the role of human perception and how sensors create and enhance simulated environments. Mara also explained various brain mechanisms that enable users to believe that a computer-generated world is effectively real. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to tell you that I launched a new podcast. It's called The 5-Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll hear advice from prominent engineers, entrepreneurs, artists, and more in 5 minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching 5-Minute Mentor. Check it out at mentors.fm. Thank you. Mar González-Franco, researcher at Microsoft Research, is joining us today. Mar, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dana. Today we're going to talk about various topics, most of them um, around virtual reality and human perception. In one paper that you wrote titled Model of Illusions and Virtual Reality, you mentioned at the beginning that the initial concept of virtual reality also known as VR, was formulated in the 1960s by Dr. Ivan Sutherland. Can you explain what the initial concept of VR was? Yes.
1: So it's been just barely 50 years of the first Ivan Sutherland's word of Damocles, it was called. so, And I think the name that he used and they coined for this prototype and this device, it's very self-explanatory of how heavy the machinery was then and how far from the consumer. It was so heavy, they hung it from the ceiling. And as in the epic from, you know, the Greek mythology in which there is a very, very heavy sword on top of Damocles' head. So that's how you needed the components required this large amount of, it was very heavy, a big, big computer required, and it allowed you to see just barely few lines. And it's very interesting how the first virtual reality device, uh, this one, was actually a mixed reality, an augmented reality. You could see through the real world and you'll see some lines uh, in front of you, like a cube. Okay, so you could see a wireframe cube in front of you.
0: Back then, what were sort of the motivations to do this or the applications that they were thinking for this?
1: I think they were designing all this interaction and the whole team, Ivan Sutherland later moved also to University of Utah, where you found the people who, like Henry Gouraud, who later also created the Gouraud shading. They were very uh, clearly concerned about representation of the world inside virtual setups and digital world like CAD or uh, computer-assisted design or, um, you know, the forms... Cubes. How do you represent the uh, minimal geometrical forms inside a computer? And then how do you display that? So they started the whole revolution of displaying graphics, the whole idea of graphic computing. And Ivan Sutherland himself was very much involved in that whole revolution.
0: Earlier you talked about mixed reality and augmented reality and also virtual reality. What is the definition of virtual reality? Yeah.
1: So in Jaron Lanier's uh, book, The Dawn of Everything, I think he has like 50 descriptions of virtual reality. But I would say from the system perspective, it's an interface between you and the real world that will capture all your outputs, movements, etc., and provide you inputs. Corresponding, You know, the visual input, the tactile input, even, you know, every sensory input that you have might have a counter simulator that and altogether creates a virtual reality. But the fact is that because we are very visual animals with a very good visual simulator that it's matched to our motions. So we have motion tracking and head tracking in particular. You can already create this very strong illusion that you're in a different place and the things that are happening are real. And basically you have this presence illusion.
0: Can you give a description, for example, of a simulated environment that can lead to you believing you are in that place?
1: Yes, this very nice simulation that was presented in Seagraph some years ago already. So the technology was not even what it is now, but it mind blow everyone. They had a pit, sort of like a cliff in front of you. So you were entering into this room and there was a hole in the room and people were asked to cross to the other end of the room and nobody crossed through the hole. And the hall was literally virtual. The real scenario didn't have a hole. People could have crossed through the floor normally and nothing would have happened. But everybody went through the side of the room to avoid, you know, falling on that hole. So that's the level of realism that you get on the responses of people in virtual reality. And they also did a measure of electrophysiology. And they found that the heart rate of people when they approach that cliff increased. Significantly. So they were very stressed by the fact that there was a hole there, you know, like very deep. You could fall there, only virtually fall, because in reality there was nothing. And they knew there was nothing because they put on the headset in the room. There was no hole in the room, but inside VR, they clearly wanted to avoid that hole. And this is even more so in current devices that have wide field of view, very low latency, the graphics are amazing. So when you enter virtual reality nowadays, um, the experience is very realistic. It feels like you're somewhere else.
0: So does the environment itself look very realistic or could we see this behavior if they're in an environment that looks like a cartoon or something more like a, you know, non-realistic video game graphics? Would we also be able to think we are there? Yes, this is partially the interesting thing is that
1: because things are plausible, you know, they behave more or less how you would expect them, like their physics engine or, you know, there is something about it that makes it very real. And you feel like you're there. It doesn't really matter if it's cartoonish. And in fact, many of the experiments I test I test them in in lower computer graphics type of setups. And if they work here, you can assume they will work on higher end graphics. There is only one exception, which is when you're getting almost perfect representations of reality. There is this well-known effect called the uncanny valley, in which people can start perceiving things to be like glitches, and that breaks your illusion. One example that people might remember is from the movie industry. When they did Benjamin Button, the whole model of Brad Pitt being old, it looked kind of weird sometimes. And people were like, oh, it's, yeah, yikes, no? That effect, it's the uncanny Valley." It's a very, very good representation, but something is off. And that Benjamin Button is so well done that for most of the movie, you don't have that type of experience. But at some point, you might get into that uh, effect.
0: And you study particularly the intersection between VR and human perception. Can you give some context of what human perception consists of?
1: Yes. So it's very interesting because many people who study human perception come from pure neuroscience, and they do things like examples of the rubber hand illusion in which you will provide with a brush, you'll touch on the skin of the person, and at the same time, they're going to see you're touching something else, and you're providing this type of illusions that the touch is happening in a certain way, that your body has changed. But in virtual reality and with technology, we can provide a super accurate, synchronous type of experimentation in which we have real-time systems with millimetric accuracy providing the stimulation. So, for example, with touch, you're holding two controllers, which means I can make the controllers vibrate whenever I want. And when I make them vibrate in a certain way, you can feel like perceiving touch through the controllers. For example, if you're holding a virtual bar in front of your hands and somebody was to touch that bar in the middle, you'll perceive, like, oh yeah, I felt that touch or somebody touching you in your hand in virtual reality. So that type of perception is what I'm very interested on, the perception of the lower level touch or spatial audio perception. Like you feel like somebody's talking to you from your back, talking to you from the back or from the front. And you can build head-related transfers, form factors that will allow you to spatialize audio around your head, depending on when you're looking at. So all of that is a perception type of experiments. And why I'm interested in perception is also because the way we perceive the world changes how we behave upon it. So behavior is very much uh, modulated by perception. And at the end of the day, we want certain behaviors in virtual reality and in general to be prevailing. For example, all these problems with harassment inside VR might go away if you are more embedded there like you are in reality. Or, for example, you can have experiences you never had before that could increase your empathy, uh, like being in a avatar of a different gender or race. And for the first time, feeling what it is to be in that set up in in that scenario, like being in a different race avatar can actually reduce your racial bias. So there are like very nice implications on the behavioral level that come back from how we perceive things. So I'm trying to understand perception and behavior inside virtual reality, creating very specific experiments.
0: In terms of the impact that you're talking about of helping reduce racial bias. What is the minimum experience that a person can go through in VR to be able to change bias? Is it enough just to look at your avatar or is there um, some sort of interactions involved?
1: The most important thing, of course, is the avatar that you're inhabiting. And in order to feel that that avatar is you, you need to be in first-person perspective You need to be in control, also known sometimes as having agency over the avatar. So when it moves, it's because you're moving and, you know, and then you create this embodiment illusion. This is my body. This is me. And then after that happens, you can change the body into very different forms. And it's interesting because it's, we're very plastic. Our brain is super plastic into accepting changes to our bodies. Even in real life, you know, women can be pregnant and have like this ginormous belly and still feel like it's part of their body, even if it's just temporal. In virtual reality, that goes even further. You know, people have uh, reported to be in virtual reality and perceive an arm that is twice their size. You know, so super long arm and that allows them to interact with things that are farther away. You know, it's kind of interesting because that provides you some sort of superpowers.
0: And in virtual reality, does it also alter the way the avatar behaves? For example, if I have a really big avatar... Do I see an impact on that when I'm like walking in the environment?
1: Yes, it's kind of interesting because
0: there's been some research
1: on audio perception and avatars. And you know how when we walk, we make sounds and we hear and we can know like whether we're walking on carpet or on wood, stone, but we also hear through that resonance what's our own weight. So if you make that sound, much louder, it feels like pff, pff, you are heavier. And people found there is a researcher who was in University College London, but now it's in Madrid. She's uh, Ana hadura Professor Ana hadura found a very interesting effect that if you heard like higher pitch steps, you were more likely to do exercise for longer you would walk longer distances and feel like you're less tired. So it's kind of interesting how our own body sounds and perception of sound can alter our behavior, even for something like exercise.
0: Which ties to what you mentioned earlier, that we can have some of the changes that we go through in VR prevail through when we're not in VR, like maybe after some experience, you know, we decide, to take on more exercise, right? That's what you're saying is possible.
1: Yes, completely. And the other way to change behavior in VR, apart from their own avatar, is by who do you hang out with, okay? So this is like in reality... People say, "Yo, oh, I don't want my kid to hang out with these other kids. Or, But what about yourself? You're pretty much the product of your surroundings. And there are mimicry effects. And we talk about this in the paper uh, with Jaron on Model of Illusions, in which you sort of behave the way you're expected to behave. In the same way that in reality, when we are going to a cocktail party, we dress on a cocktail attire to fit in. In virtual reality, it will be similar if we are performing an action like playing the drums with a suit, business suit, we're a bit maybe uncomfortable and we are probably not going to perform so well as if we feel very comfortable, like with a more casual type of uh, clothes. And uh, similar studies have shown that You know, for example, regarding posterior behavior to VR, because what we learn in VR also transfers to reality. That once you are, for example, embodying an avatar that's older than you, like looks like you, but it's an older version. When you come out of the virtual reality experience, you're more likely to save for retirement. And it's very interesting, but, you know, people do become aware of things inside VR.
0: That's very interesting. And also the other thing that I was reading from your work is when you talk about the different brain mechanisms that can enable us to believe that we're in this environment or assimilate the avatar. And this can be modeled through several processes. The ones that I saw were the bottom-up multisensory process, the sensory motor, and the top-down prediction. Can you talk about these processes?
1: Yes, I love this question. Thank you. So generally, our brain is a combination of uh, predictions. And in the prediction model, there is also this whole consciousness level that we have that other animals don't have. So on the bottom-up type of events, there are things like I touch this, I perceive the touch, I interpret the touch, and then I act upon it. And then all the top-down, which are the very interesting ones and the ones that create all these pathologies that we see, like uh, schizophrenia or so on, generally, they have some component of top-down errors. But perfectly healthy people can also have a top-down type of error. And the example is how many times you thought that your mobile phone was vibrating and it wasn't. Okay, that's an illusion that you had. in with your top-down system made a prediction that the phone was vibrating, but then when you checked, it wasn't. Okay, so... In a person who's a schizophrenic, they don't know anymore because there is a problem on their system, maybe from the actual input of their signals from the real world or from the prediction mechanism. They are not able to say which one of the two is to rely on, whether it's the sensory input that says that the phone didn't vibrate or whether it's the prediction, top-down prediction that says the phone vibrated. And other self-suggested type of example of top-down manipulation is is very much like when you see a lot of bees or some sort of animals, and then all of a sudden you start scratching, like it's scratching and itching, and you feel like that. In reality, you were never touched by any of those animals. It's just like a natural reaction, but it's completely self-generated, and you would swear that itching for real, like the same way you would swear that the vibration happened for real on the mobile phone. So virtual Reality is a very nice because we can start trying to separate both and provide input that is purely input and not self-suggested, but also provide, you know, when we do repetitions, we will have expectations of a next repetition to happen. So we can start playing with prediction mechanisms. So one example of an experiment that I did around that area, we simulated a very weird pathology, which is called the Anarchic Hand Syndrome in which a person is not able to control their own hand. So the hand moves in weird directions and they cannot control it to a point that if you come near me with a sandwich and I'm hungry, my hand will go and grab it. And I have no way to stop it Unless, you know, some people do it, actually hold my hand with the other hand. This is a super rare pathology. It happens generally after people undergo brain surgery because of some epilepsy attack that they needed to cut and then they have had some cut between the frontal lobe of the brain and the sensory motor cortex of one particular hemisphere. So in that scenario, we created a similar effect on real people. They were moving their hand according to an arrow and they would go very fast. And all of a sudden the hand would go in the contrary direction. Okay, so that's a type of a scenario that you can only replicate inside virtual reality. Because you can, in reality, your hand will go wherever you send it. In virtual reality, you can make your hand go in whatever direction you want, and there will be a mismatch. And then we can see whether the visual sensor wins, whether the proprioceptive sensor wins, whether the prediction sensor wins. It's kind of a very interesting machine to study complex uh, neuroscience too and perception.
0: So will this have applications? In the healthcare space, do you see something like this?
1: Yes, for sure. I think it has applications on the healthcare space, but I also think it has applications on the basic science to understand how our brain works, because it's very hard to simulate things. And if we only have pathologies that we cannot test on real people, like non-pathology people, I mean. It's hard to drive actual theories of why things are happening. You know, if we can simulate effects on the normal population, it will actually help us understand what's happening, how the brain works, and fix some of the other pathologies. So, of course, there is like a therapy application for it. But there is also kind of an interesting area there that beyond the applications for medical purposes, the learnings you have will help you develop better interaction techniques for the consumers, which seems obvious that you need a theory of how motor interactions happen in real world in order to recreate them in the virtual world, especially when in the virtual world you can do things that you cannot do in reality.
0: Exactly. One more thing that I wanted to talk with you about is if there are some ethical challenges currently in the VR space that are you know being discussed or explored that you know of?
1: Yeah, I think one of the challenges of uh, VR on the ethical part is what happens when half of the population have AR, VR, and the other half doesn't. So I am seeing this enriched type of world and you are not. And for example, we built a tool recently with Dan McDuff, who is, you know, my office mate here. He developed a technique in which you can take out of the video stream, the RGB channels, and use a combination of them to calculate the heart rate of the person who's looking at a camera. So when you're wearing something like a HoloLens or any other type of device that is capturing the environment, uh, you could actually know what the heart rate of the person in front of you is. But if that person doesn't have a HoloLens or another type of mixed reality device on top of them, they will not have that augmentation. And in the same way that currently people who don't have a mobile phone cannot access to the same society that people who have a smart mobile phone can access, like, you know, hailing for an Uber. I think there is a challenge here on what happens when some part of the population will have access to this technology that we are augment their lives and some other part of the population don't have access to that. Um, I think it's not a new problem. We've, this is a problem that happens with every technological advantage I imagine the guy who invented the fire had a greater advantage compared to the guy next door who didn't know how to start a fire in their cave but eventually you know everybody this was common knowledge and everybody could start fires and I think there is like a need for us reaching every corner in the world with this type of technology so there are no more inequalities created and and that's kind of an ethical and or societal challenge that we have, that, you know, VR AR as a technology that allows you to do spatial computing, should also reach Africa as soon as it reaches the rest of the world. And I actually, I'm optimistic about this compared to other technologies. This is something that runs on battery, so you don't need to have electricity the whole day around. And it's a wearable, it's relatively compact. And, you know, the mass production of it could significantly lower cost of production too. So it becomes something more like you know, people have mobile phones in Africa very largely now is probably the single piece of equipment or electronics they have as soon as they can. So I can imagine how, you know, VR, AR could be similarly adopted. Especially because you can render a mobile phone inside a VR headset. So it could be your mobile phone, plus it could be also your computer. It could be everything in there. It's like the Lord of the Ring, one ring to win them all, no?
0: Yes, definitely. Well, Mar, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure talking with you about VR. Thank you, thank you Dana.